Sally Cooper is the author of Love Object, which received praise from critics and earned a devoted following of readers. She lives in Hamilton, Ontario. Her second novel is, quote, a gripping, vividly imagined work from a gifted writer who is not afraid to take her readers into the darkest regions of the human soul. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you, Nigel. What are the darkest regions of the human soul? In Tell Everything, they are the urges to experience pain and to explore murder and what motivates somebody to murder, which I think is still stands as the most hard-to-fathom human urge, you know, and one that in our society we are fascinated with. I mean, our, a lot of our art is around murder. People who kill are part of the media all the time, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's the first thing that you hear on pretty well every newscast is who's been murdered tonight before. Exactly. One of the more memorable media frenzies occurred around Carla Homolka and, and Bernardo, and I wondered if that was something that was on your mind when you pieced together the plot of this book. It absolutely was on my mind, and I had been living in Toronto for the first time in 1995, and I lived in the High Park neighborhood. I don't know if um, you know that neighborhood, but that same summer, um, body parts had been found in the lower pond, and a voyeur had been reported in the neighborhood, and it was also the summer of the Bernardo trial, which I followed, and I had always been a reader of true crime. And here it was happening, you know, right on my doorstep. I, I found myself fascinated with it and also full of fear living in the city. And from that kind of climate, I came to this story and I started wondering what brought these seemingly ordinary people who were like a lot of, I'd say, resembled people I had gone to school with and, you know, or their upbringings. What had made them cross that line? And I started creating characters in not the same situations but similar situations and and exploring well you know what could push somebody over that line to to do the things that they did or similar things and and so from that I started writing the story would you like to tell us what the story is about it's about a young woman who finds out that a former friend of hers has been accused of murdering her husband. And she finds this out on the front page of a tabloid newspaper. And she is quickly drawn into the police station and and into the case and asked, or actually required, to testify against this woman. And so things that they had done together and um, things that she maybe wouldn't even have visited in her memory since and nobody knew about are now going to be part of public knowledge and so she must she's sort of forced to face what were traumatic events for her and integrate them into her life in some way in mm-hmm. a very public way mm-hmm. so she had to tell everything in front of a, a judge and the media and her boyfriend and her boyfriend and potentially her parents and friends and everybody so basically she's forced to tell everything she is and it's interesting how the, the chapters move back and forth between the today and the time that she had her friendship with uh, Ramona. Yeah, she's, Pauline is the main character in Tell Everything, and she, as a way of um, accessing what happened and kind of maybe 
getting a handle on it, she writes about it. And she writes about it in the third person. And she writes herself with a childhood name, like a nickname that she had had. And Peck. so Peck, yeah, so we go back and forth. Peck on the cheek. Peck on the cheek, yeah, that's where the name comes from. For yeah. Her father called it the hard kisses she gave, and called her Peck. And The line here on page 210, and the book is about 212 pages long, a philosopher once said the secret of being tiresome is to tell everything. So she lives in fear of boring <laughs> people who are close to her, like her boyfriend? I, I, I don't know if I would say boring, but she lives in fear of revealing too much and being known completely, and, and perhaps um, if she's known, losing that mystique or whatever it is that that's holding them together. And I think she she fears that love love is not her due if she is fully known if that makes sense um so that there's a part of her that believes in sort of captivating um by holding back Mm -hmm. yeah but she's afraid that if she does if she tells all then she'll be abandoned just like her mother left when she was young possibly could be part of it and it you know yes a certain self-protection there and also because of the things she has to tell this is common for, um, I don't know, you could call it sexual trauma or sexual misadventure or whatever, but there is a sense of shame around the things that she did. Well, maybe you could talk about exactly what happens. Or I could, yeah. Um, well, what happens is that Pauline and Ramona, or I guess Peck as she's called when she's younger, develop a friendship based on acting out plays that they write together. And it starts out with fairy tales and it develops to... Um, plays based on crimes that they that they've uh, read about and so in one of the scenarios things go too far between Mona and Peck and Mona's fiance and when I say too far um, they get more violent or sexual than Peck would have maybe wanted but what happens within the in the aftermath is that she's never sure how much she encouraged and how much she didn't and, and it really it, it speaks to the line of consent and it's a blurred line in this case and it I in think it often too, is it? Yeah. it really often is and I don't think it's it's cl- and, and so it's hard for her to put on that mantle of victim as you know that clear-cut role of I am completely wronged when she knows that maybe she did encourage or maybe she was okay up until a point well, she was aroused, too. She was. But does that mean that she consented? Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there, it's so complicated um, what's around that. She doesn't have... I, I mean, it's natural to feel a certain shame, even if she didn't consent, or if she did. Either way, that she's, she's grappling with some of that. And so she doesn't trust necessarily that she could tell it and still be accepted and loved. I think she finds that she can, in the end, by friends and by her husband. But does she tell at all? Do we know that? I don't, it's first-person narrative, so it's uh, up to the reader to decide how much they trust her. Mm-hmm. It reminds me uh, a little bit of a short story I read some time ago by Michael Redhill mm-hmm. in his collection called Fidelity, where a, a video shows up at the house of the 16-year-old daughter having sex with two young men. And the father 
comes home and views it and is furious and goes to the police. Mm. Eventually you find out that it was the daughter that instigated the whole thing. Mm. And that in fact, if they went to the police and to the papers, her name would appear in the newspaper, but the boys, because they were a year younger, wouldn't. It's, in my opinion, the best in that collection. But it's, it reminded me of automatic assumptions that occur, mm-hmm. particularly around sex, but sex that's maybe uh, pushing the limits. Yeah. And around women. And yeah, the um, idea that the, 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 the father automatically would yeah. would assume that his pure daughter would never do anything like that. And Peck's concern that her husband would think less of her because of what she did. Right, exactly. And that her father would, and which she probably would. Um, although her father has a parade of girlfriends through her life, you know. So he's he's not. Um, no, and and I was also it, just taking that a little further. I was really fascinated, and back to Homolka, with the way we as a as a public and also the way our media has represented her it's very troubling um that we can't see that a woman can be every bit the predator sexual or otherwise that a man can be as she as evidence of but um and that the things that happened um with her and bernardo could have come and likely did as equally from her as they did from him Mm-hmm. We've seen her represented in the media as helpless. Well, she looks the part too, doesn't she? She looks the part, and she looks fragile sometimes. But then there was all of this titillation that came out in the tabloids of her in prison with her lovers and in lingerie posing. And I mean, do we see pictures of Paul Bernardo posing in? I mean, there may be those pictures, but we don't see them on the front page of the Toronto Sun because nobody would buy it I mean maybe it just wouldn't but you know with 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 her she's we want to see her as a sexy monster why is that why can't we accept her as um the predator that she is you mean the 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 evil nasty person that that doesn't have any qualms about killing people and I think so yeah and I I mean I think we do accept it now because of the way she looks though I think that's a huge part of it it is we just don't attach those characteristics to women. We just don't. We really, really don't. And um, and we're so surprised when we find out. We don't want to know that that could happen. Yeah. You know that she could have taken pleasure in the things that happened. That she could have instigated them and encouraged them and conceived of them. Any of that, you know. But because oh, but look, she's so small and blonde and pretty and smiling. And how could she? That's not supposed to happen, and it's, I don't know, maybe it's too bad that we have to know that it happens, (laughs) but it does. You're, uh, but your character, Peck, I mean, she's not evil, though. Oh, no, she's not. Not at all, no. 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 But so you're not not really making that point in the the book. Maybe more so with the portrayals of Ramona um, and how she's portrayed in the media, and that's maybe kind of a side but you're right. No, Peck isn't isn't evil, and she's not preying on anybody. And she's really, um, she's attracted to Ramona. She may even love her. You know, she has a very intense feelings for her. So she's coming from a genuine place, really. I mean, she likes to read a lot of true crime, and she knows everything about every serial killer. But 
I'd like to pose that perhaps there are a lot of people like that, or young people at that time, you know, that would, the serial killers were um, really a, a huge part of our media and our entertainment in, in the early 90s and the 80s when that happened. I think they still are, but it was really coming to a forefront then. Yeah, and you got caught up in that as a young teen. But maybe more in my 20s. As a teenager, I read a lot of you know those Alfred Hitchcock magazines and collections? I read a lot of that stuff in the Stephen King. You know, I read literary things too. I to save myself, I'll say that. But, um, but the truth, stuff you really wanted to read was the... Sure. Yeah. After university, I only read good things in university, but after university I would have little true crime binges where I would just read and read and read and read and then I'd get completely frightened and glutted and I couldn't do it anymore and ashamed and I'd put them all away or give them away and then, you know, some months would pass and I'd want to read them again. You're purging that by writing this book. Yes, and I have purged it. I've, I've lost <laughs> all desire to, you know, know about John Wayne Gacy or whoever, you know, I don't want to know now. Let's uh, look at a few other themes here that, that came out. Another novel or movie that, that I was reminded of was J.G. Ballard's Crash this idea of sex and death and uh, injury and uh, did that cross your mind? Have you read it? You I haven't read it but I've seen the film I, yeah. I understand they're different but yes it's the idea of people who have these fixations <laughs> on yeah like you're saying sex and death and then they just they actually they find someone else who has that fixation and they find a way to act it out I guess you could say it's a safe way. Can you talk about the thrill of the wanting to feel alive, this, this idea of putting together scenarios that get close to danger? It's a thrill. It's, it's, it's S&M as well. I agree, and I think there, there definitely is a thrill. They're coming at it for different reasons. The characters are, excuse me. The uh, man who's involved in all of this, James, he is studying to be a criminal lawyer, and his take on it is that he wants to get as close to what it might feel like to kill in order to understand his clients, you know, whether we believe that's why or if it's just for the thrill of it. He wants to, to kind of have that, yes, that thrill and that sense of power. And For Pauline, though, you mentioned S&M or SM. For her, I would say it's more clearly the M side of all of that. And I think part of what you're reading here is maybe the building's Ramon of a masochist, like as she realizes herself, and she realizes and accepts that, accepts that that's how she loves, that needing to receive some pain. And that's kind of the way she puts what happened into context and puts it into her life. Instead of burying it or instead of demonizing it, she accepts it. Which is, in fact, the very last line of the book. To induce Alex, her boyfriend, to mark my skin and give me the pain that will let me show him the truth of how I love. Mm -hmm. She loves by allowing or getting the one she loves to harm her? In a safe way. <laughs> yeah. That's, you, okay. you nailed it, yeah. Is that because she doesn't feel deserving of the love because her mother abandoned her and she needs to experience it in that sort of negative way? First of all, I, I would hesitate to psychoanalyze her that way, and I don't know that we can make a cause effect between mother abandoning her and how she's grown. I do know at one point she makes that connection herself, but you have to understand that is directly after the, the events happen, and she's just she's young, and she's also looking for someone to blame 
when she doesn't know how to make sense of it. Is it a negative? I don't know. Um, is it not just something consensual between two adults? That's another way to look at it. And we can say harm, but is it harming her if it's just a certain, a small amount of pain that her it's husband is... Wound. Yeah, so, <laughs> I mean, so I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's all quite complex, and it's just how these two people work out, you know, how they want to be together at that time. We talk about storytelling, and that's sort of how the two characters, Peck and Ramona, become intimate mm -hmm. through reenacting Rapunzel. There's also, and this gets into a sort of experiential method of writing. Peck is a writer, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. for Pauline. Mm -hmm. And she builds a box that's supposed to replicate a camera in her room. I wonder if you could talk about that a bit. About the box that she built? Yeah, just that mm -hmm. whole approach of writing and if that's the way you do things. Not so much. I always was taken by a story about Timothy Finley. He was writing about a dog, so he went out and he sat in the doghouse, and you know he actually did all of the things, right? Yeah. Um, so like method acting. Yeah, this is method writing. So just to I, I don't know assure you or whatever, I did not experience all of the things that my characters experienced, and I didn't seek them out. But I really liked this idea that a person would kind of take what was going on inside her and build it or write it, you know, in a way she didn't even really understand. So do I do that? Maybe, but if I do, I don't quite understand what I'm doing with doing it. You don't do it with objects, then? No. I do do it with scrapbooks, but I don't know. I don't think that's that abnormal. I keep... Mm. So what, she's, what is she doing there, then? She's, she's building a box that's like a camera. What is she actually yeah. concretely doing? Yeah. She's building this big box. She's thinking about the kind of containers that sometimes people are kept in, you know, when people are unwittingly kidnapped, and they will be sometimes kept in small containers. So she's thinking about that as she builds it. It is a camera. It's a pinhole camera. Mm. And so she discovers that she can take photographs, you know, by putting up a certain kind of paper on the other side. She can take photographs of what is happening outside. I don't know. I can keep going on it. But well, I just wonder. <laughs> sort I just, of a, it was just like sort of why does she do yes, it? Or? Yeah, yeah. I just was. I wondered about that whole the object, the camera, real life versus a photographic image. It's all there. Um, <laughs> I had actually been inspired for that by an installation that I saw that was similar to it. And what the artist had done was she had read a slave narrative. It's called Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, and it's a real slave narrative from uh, a Civil War slave who had escaped. And she had lived in a very small space for seven years to preserve her life. And she could see, the artist imagined, was she might have a small, the size of a pinhole, or, you know, that she could see what was happening in the courtyard in the house that she was, she was actually above a garage. And then the artist had thought, well, what if through that hole, images would then get projected, and then you're getting life another, at another remove. Like Plato's cave? Are we going there or not? Mm, you could. <laughs> I hadn't gone there, but you could. And um, because in the novel, Pauline is actually writing a novel about slavery at, at that time, at that, of that era, she starts building this in the way that that artist might have. It's also a way of avoiding writing, you know. Yes, like, procrastinating. Okay, yeah, I mean, I'm blocked. Why? Uh, what am I going to do? Oh, I'll just I'll go sit in the doghouse or I'll build this thing. You know, I'm just going to do something <laughs> right. instead of of writing. And then she was a visual artist when she was younger. Anyway, she used to build um, little models of everything that they acted out. She, but she wasn't a very good painter, though. 
according to her husband. No, she wasn't, and she didn't even try. I mean, she got kind of shot down, and she just stopped, right? She certainly was drawn to making things in three dimensions as a young woman, and so she, that was a natural way of expressing herself, and so um, maybe more natural in some ways than the writing. You know, it came more easily to her. Yeah, she hasn't been published or anything. She's just no, she experimenting just with... Yeah, she likes to write, and she's never had, she's never shown her art anywhere either. And with Joy, when Joy comes to her house, this is the first person who's seen her art. Art is experiential to her, and I guess, you know, as an installation artist, that sort of makes sense, and so she just, they, they go right into it. We've touched on Bernardo and uh, Amolka. Was that what motivated you to write the book, or was it this love of true crime, or were you sort of searching for ideas and this culminated? You know, it's not even that. It, it's all of the above, really. Mm. And I I created a character who, I mean, the base, she was fascinated with true crime, and she loved watching talk shows, and that's Pauline. You know, that's who she is. She's from northern Ontario, well, central Ontario, and she moves down to the suburbs, and that's a, a key factor in her life. Her mom has left for another man. She's raised by her dad. So the, these are sort of like where she came from. And she met this woman, this criminal, in a younger phase of this criminal's life. So those were sort of the things. It was a what if. What if this ordinary girl who happened to like true crime met, you know, what I'll call a female predator? What happened if these two people met? The one who uh, liked to read about it and the one who actually does it. Mm. What happens when the two collide? And what better place to have it happen than a suburb mm. where nothing's happening. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a sameness. And, and she, she didn't like it at first, but then she does like it. You know what to expect, and you know nobody's going to look at you, and you're just sort of a, a blank canvas in a way. You can just sort of be who you are and invent yourself there. What made you go back and forth uh, in the way that you do from chapter to chapter? Incidentally, I'm yeah. speaking to... I'm speaking to Sally Cooper. <laughs> She's the author of Tell Everything, published by the Dundurn Group. I, no, no, I can't Tell does that all the time, and I, I always forget. Oh, and I know how annoying it is <laughs> when you're listening, right? Oh, and you're wondering, you wonder, who, who is, is this? this? And yeah, it was just, I, I don't know, a way of getting a handle on the material, making it fully Pauline's story. Originally, I had told the story from the point of view of an escort officer. An escort officer? Escort officer. It's somebody who escorts the prisoners who are on trial from the prison to the court van and from the court van into the courthouses, specifically an escort officer. Mm. Then I was really blessed to have a tour of Metro West Detention Center. I say blessed because it it changed the novel completely, and I saw... Truly, what is it like to be in, I saw, I mean, I didn't experience it, but what is it like to be incarcerated? And this is a place, a holding place for people who are, have been charged and are waiting trial in Toronto. And Although I reala- that doesn't really make its way into the novel. No, it doesn't, because I realized that the novel as it stood made no sense, <laughs> the way I had imagined it. It's in there, it's in a dream, it's, it shows up, you know, one paragraph, mm. and the escort officer is a cameo at some point, and, you know, she's, but she used to be the narrator, so once she, once I excised her from the book, I had to think about, well, whose story is it? It's Pauline's story more than it is Ramona's story, it really is, and going back and forth allowed the past to have a strong presence in the story, 
but also not to dominate it. And and we we have the past given to us in the as she's processing it, yes. although it's chronological. But. So this is a sort of a catharsis, then this book you say. I think so. How did how did that work for you? Like you don't want to go back to any. Uh, you don't want to read true crime anymore. No, I don't. I don't even want to. Um, although I did see No Country for Old Men, I for the most part I'm not really interested in watching um, crime and film at the moment either. I, I think this is true of many authors, or if not most, that this was a compulsion. Writing this was a compulsion, and I, I think you could real, almost can't go forward unless you have an element of compulsion there, because there's so many reasons not to. And I, I, f- I found it quite challenging to write the violent scenes, and I would find myself delaying it, delaying it, delaying it until I, you know, absolutely had to, and then I'd write them. Making a box, or. I'd make a box, I'd go and sit in the, on the garage roof, and, you know, <laughs> anything but... <laughs> oh, okay, go visit the prison, you know. <laughs> um, I don't know, I think I, I was able to, you know, really explore how if you took what, for me, was just probably a garden variety fascination with serial killers, and just, you know, push, 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 how far could that go? And to just really understand it, I, I feel that you know when you're writing a novel, often you are asking yourself some questions. I feel like I I, I settled some things for myself there, and I, I don't even know that I can articulate them what they mm. are or what they mean to me. But I'm I'm not the same person who started writing this book, and I I don't have whatever need it was that drove me to read those books. I don't have that now, and I don't have that fear that I had. Fear of what being killed by a serial killer? Yeah. <laughs> yes, a fear of walking the streets in the city mm. that I live in, you know, a fear that, that I'll find myself embroiled in some situation that I can't handle or control or whatever. Um, I think I sort of understand that a bit more and that something got integrated without overanalyzing myself. But I, I just think, you know, when you've completed a book and you've really explored those questions, whether you've got satisfying a- answers or not, at least you explored them, you now go on to whatever else is going to compel you for the next three to eight years. <laughs> I don't know, I picked that number randomly. <laughs> well, how long did this one take you? This one took a long time, um, about six yeah. years, five, six years. My first novel came out in the middle of that, so I took a year break to edit that and promote that. And I also worked during that time, so I don't know, would it have taken less time? A creative writing teacher? Yes. Well, when I started it, I was running a writing center, so I was tutoring. And then I was teaching um, not only creative writing, but English courses as well, and now just creative writing. So is that that's what you studied at, at Guelph? No, not at all. I studied English literature. I, um, I did my master's degree in English literature with a focus on Commonwealth and Canadian. You weren't schooled in the, uh, in the actual practicalities of writing. It's, it's more mm. reading. Uh, just reading, reading, reading. Yeah. I... I've actually wanted to be, or known I would be a writer since I was about eight years old, and I've had this powerful drive just to read, you know, and Mm. as a young person I did anyway, and I think that first and foremost, that is the best education a writer can have, is reading. Even, you know, just to get the classics in there. And and I went to University of Guelph where... um, the education I got was quite old school. I mean, we did our, we read Chaucer, we read Spencer, we read Pope, we read all the the classics, and um, so it was good to have that. 
And I'm talking with Sally Cooper, author of Tell Everything, published by the Dundurn Group. In closing, perhaps we could look at just a few specific lines in the book, and I would like to talk about, continue to talk about what motivates you to, to write. Now I'm looking at page 82. Peck's eyes watered. She had murder in her, too, her mother's gift. But she couldn't show Mona yet. She needed to hold something back. That says uh, quite a bit in two little sentences there. Yes, it does. I mean, on a literal level, her mother, Pauline's mother, Peck's mother, has just left. You know, she's left with another man and left the family. But she's left behind her own collection of true crime. And so that's Peck's first introduction to it. She gets her mom's books and she starts reading them at a pretty young age. You know, they even take it a little farther to an idea of her sort of, now she's she's different, she's outcast a little bit, she's outside of things. But I really think at that moment when Peck is thinking that, she's what, she's 17 and, and she really just connects that need to read about murder to her mom. You know, that, oh, I wouldn't have needed to read about this or wanted to read about it if, if you'd been there. Just as a child's way of blaming mm-hmm. mom, too. You know, whether it's true or not, she may very well have liked all of that stuff had her mom stayed, you know, and found some other reason to, to want to read it. But you do say she had murder in her, too. Mm-hmm. As opposed to she had an interest in reading true crime. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But that's her way of thinking that, you know. Are you suggesting that I'm saying that she herself would like to kill? Mm. She has that urge, perhaps. Perhaps. And she needed to hold something back. Again, that's harkening back to the title, Tell Everything. Yeah. Again, she felt she couldn't talk to Ramona about this because then Ramona wouldn't love her. Maybe so, yeah. And and that fear of, of revealing yourself. Yeah, exactly. Her, her fear of revealing herself completely and a sense of having control over a friend, a potential friend or a lover or whatever, that control coming from the sense that she's holding something back or she's got a secret about her or she hasn't revealed everything. Whether that's true or not, a true perception, is up to debate, but that is how she feels. I mean, that's, it's also self-protection and um, it's not love certainly not love. It's how she is in the world. It's just how she is as a person. Mm-hmm. And from a young age. It's just self-protecting because of pain that uh, she's experienced. Yeah. Without getting too psychoanalytical. Yeah. <laughs> right. Mona swiveled her head with the ease of a sunful iguana. What's a sunful iguana? Is that one that's sitting in the sunshine, basking? Mm-hmm. As opposed to one in the shade? Yes. And sunful meaning that they love to be in the sun, and so they're, you know, sated with it and just sort of... Stretching out. Happy, in a happy, like, kind of, I don't know if iguanas are happy, but, you know, <laughs> they sort of, in, in its element is the way you want to think about that, as opposed to an iguana outside now in a snowdrift, how, how its head would swivel at that point would be different. <laughs> if it slower. would indeed swivel. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is another nice thing, and we talk about the father. I think the father does love her, Hank. He makes a remark about 
pack is going off with Jim and, and Mona, he, he says, as long as it's not the long weekend, I'm happy to share her. I thought that was quite touching, a nice way of, I don't want to share her, you know, if it's time that I can spend with her. Yeah. Nice expression of how he felt of her, toward her. Yeah, thanks, Nigel. Right? I, I think, yeah, absolutely. He he adores her, and I mean, he. the thing about her father, he's a young man. I mean, he's a young father, and he's raising her alone. And he makes this huge change to move to um, the suburb in order to give her, in his mind, a, a better shot at life, you know, to take her out of this sort of smaller community. And but he does what he can within his limitations, but it comes from a place of love. There's just a big gulf in terms of what they can communicate to one another once she becomes an adult. You make mention of Mona's brown all over body. Mm-hmm. And that conjured up an image of someone who likes to go to tanning salons for me. Or tans in her backyard and in the nude, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Again, the suburbs, <laughs> you know, with the fence around and the houses aren't that aren't that. Or the, or the criminal. Or the criminal and the exhibitionist, too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny, I didn't think of tanning salons, but it's quite possible that's... Well, that's, that's the reader taking... Ownership of the That's right. Book, isn't it? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, there was one uh, final uh, comment here. A couple things. One, maybe the fifth time they acted out Rapunzel, they discovered the stack of crime scene photographs. That was another, not a theme, but there were crime scene photographs crop up every now and again in different places. <laughs> Have you. As they are wont to do. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Have you spent time poring over a crime scene photograph? I took a forensics course um, when I was younger. What would happen with this course was different elements of a forensics team would come in each week and, and speak with us, and they were often quite open about showing us different crime scene photographs in a, as a way of displaying what they would do. And, and so I saw a number of them, and a lot of them were connected to well-known crimes or unsolved crimes, whichever, and... Anybody studying policing sees those photographs, um, you know, even in the studying. There are certain ones that are just shown as ways of um, educating. So I've seen them, and... So naked bodies and... Sometimes, or just... But, you know, often it's ordinary, people in ordinary clothes or situations who happen to have been... I did. I have seen some of those... But mainly, it w- I, I think I talked in here, but I used the line, um, or the phrase, domestic mayhem, mm. and how often it will just be in someone's kitchen, a woman in a house dress, or someone in pajamas, or, you know, and it's just, it's a, actually quite ordinary the way people are, are clothed, or they just seem to, it just seems to have happened in the domestic milieu, and those were some of the ones I saw. I saw some that were, um, you know, some that were burned, or as you said, you know, cut up. And uh, and you see them in the books, too. I mean, all the books, some of the books have pictures you can't imagine that they've been allowed to print them, but they do. And there are a few of them that I've seen that I think, oh, I wish I had not seen that, because I can't get that out of um, my mind. I really wish I hadn't seen it. Speaking about getting things out of your mind, uh, you've purged the true crime addiction. What did you purge in your first book, and is it is it a question of purging things that uh, motivates you to to write? And if so, what's the next one? 
<laughs> What's the next, the next demon? Or well, okay. Or flaw. Or as for the first book, I don't know that I would have thought of that one as a purging so much, but I certainly did. Maybe. I did have a fascination with madness. And that's what it was about, yeah. like insanely mad yeah. love objects. Yeah, I mean, in the first one, um, this young woman's mother, she witnesses her mother have a nervous breakdown and be hospitalized and then her mom disappears. But uh, in between, she and her brother live with her mom and her mom's medicated and she's not well. And so I was sort of, I was sort of fascinated around what that's like. What's next? Your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> I don't know. I have two novel ideas, but I haven't started them. Um, I'm writing short stories right now, but I seem to be interested in, um, I don't know if, I can, if I'll be able to say this in an articulate way, but people kind of facing moral issues, you know, is this right or is this wrong? Mm. And um, also people... Like what? Well, I've just written a story about a woman who is teaching at a language school and she gets involved with one of her students, a, a language school for the military. She discovers that in his uh, journal, he she thinks she discovers that he's involved with a neo-Nazi group. So she has a moral quandary here, do I tell, don't I tell, and um, and she's also misbehaving in her own way with the teacher-student line that she's crossing. So that kind of situation is what I'm interested in with the stories that I'm writing. Are you happy with the way your writing career is going? I'm very happy with it. I, re I really feel with Tell Everything that I wrote the book that I wanted to read, and that um, so you want to you wrote the book that I would want to read. Okay. You know, as a reader out in the bookstores, I would want to pick up a book like this. That's I think might going to be my guiding light with the next one that I write. You know, what would be a book I would like? It's hard not to pick up this book with this extremely sensual cover on it. <laughs> I love the cover they came up with. So it's a gorgeous sort of thick-lipped young thing whose lips are in focus and the rest of her shoulders and neck are, are fuzzy. Yeah. yeah, she's just about to tell you a secret. She's just about to tell everything. Tell everything. You hope. So have you told Have you told me everything here? Um, no. <laughs> but would I? No. <laughs> <laughs> You're happy with your career so far. Where do you want it to go? I'd like to have more readers, and I'd like to have more readers internationally. Is it the Dundurn Group that would be responsible for getting rights sold abroad for you? Um, they, you? they are in conjunction with my agent. And who's your agent? Her name's Margaret Hart with the HSW Agency, uh, which is affiliated with the Humber School for Writers. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So at this point you don't have international, so you haven't sold them yet? No. No. So if there's anybody interested who... <laughs> Come on down. Come on down. And, you know, I, I mean, truly, I, I could only ask to be um, engaged in writing. I mean, that's the best, you know, to really be right in the middle of a story, and I hope that... This is, this is sort of nirvana for you, then, is to be caught up with characters who mm -hmm. talk to you and help you mm -hmm. formulate the story. Mm-hmm. And, and then entertaining uh, and stimulating the thoughts of a larger group of readers. I think so, yeah. And traveling around the world and being feted. As a That's always good. Um, 
writing full time is a dream of mine as well. I teach, and I I, I truly enjoy teaching, but I, I like to um, I'd like to be able to be writing full time. Mm-hmm. Well, best of luck in achieving that. Thank you, Nigel. <laughs> I'll be you. speaking with uh, Sally Cooper. She's the author of Tell Everything, published in Canada, just in Canada so far, by the Dundurn Group. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you.